Well, that is indeed the message. It is that God loves you, and He's demonstrated His love through faith in Christ. And, you know, if you get nothing out of the whole service other than that, you've gotten a lot. And I hope you don't leave here today until you understand that. Well, this morning, we're going to continue with a series of messages that we started actually four Sundays ago. We're calling it The Providence of God, Lessons from the Life of Joseph. And we've said every week that the providence of God is this idea that God did not simply create the heavens and the earth together with everyone and everything in it and then wound it all up like a clock and turned it loose like a grand experiment to see what would happen next. You know, I mean, to follow along and kind of see how it would all end, to see what kind of a picture, and that's the image that we've been playing with, that everything and everyone that He created would on their own sort of come together and in the final analysis, create, but instead, God started with the picture first. And it's His picture. And then with that picture in mind, with that as the goal, He decided in advance, I want everyone to see this, and then He created. He created the heavens and the earth. He created everyone and everything in them. He created us like so many tiny pieces of this giant jigsaw puzzle that He Himself is putting together And that is amazing. And then he stepped into his creation, and he began to sovereignly govern over, sovereignly direct, sovereignly order absolutely everyone, including every one of us, and absolutely everything, including even the minutest details of every single one of our lives, like pieces of a giant jigsaw puzzle toward the creation of the big picture that one day he'll put the final piece in and it will be done. So every week we've gotten together, every week I've said that. Some of you could probably even repeat that at this point. You've heard it so many times. But then every week we've stepped into the life of this guy Joseph, which illustrates all of this stuff. And just so you know, today is the day that we've all been waiting for. I know that some of you are thinking, no, that was last week because he finally got out of the pit and everything in his life made sense and now he's the ruler of all Egypt and it's like, that was what I was waiting for. No, it isn't. This is what you were waiting for. Today is the day that he gets to meet his brothers again. This is a big day. And you see how God works. And then hopefully you examine your life by it. You know, you need a little history to understand this, and so I'm going to repeat a few things. But Joseph, if you've been with us or if you know the story, is the 11th of 12 sons born to a man named Jacob. However, he is the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife. Yes, you heard me correctly. He had more than one wife, and one was his favorite. One he loved, one he didn't. One was physically attracted, and he was attractive to her, but the other one wasn't. One he actually meant to marry, the other one he was fooled into, deceived into, tricked into marrying, never intended to marry her in the first place. However, she's the mother of most of his children, and then he had two concubines who also had children. He has ten sons by all of these other women, while his loved wife is is barren. She has none. And then she gives birth to Joseph. And it's like Jacob disregards all of his ten older sons in favor of this one son of his loved wife. And he takes this guy, Joseph, though he's the 11th born, he's the lowest, if you will, on the scale, and he puts him at the top of the flow chart. And the flow chart in the household of Jacob becomes Jacob, Joseph, and everyone else. And he demonstrates his favoritism toward Jacob by giving him the multicolored coat. You know the deal. 
And then he has one more son with this woman, Rachel, his favorite wife. And his name is Benjamin, and he's a big part of the story, particularly today. But you know that the brothers hate Joseph because of all of this favoritism, and he tattles on them from their perspective, and they hate him all the more. And then God comes. This is a big deal today, too. And God gives him these two dreams with one message, and the one message is, Joseph, a day is coming down the road. And oh, by the way, brothers, a day is coming down the road when Joseph's going to be standing in all 11 don't miss that, of you are going to be bowing at his feet. And they really don't like that. And they take their flocks and their herds and they go off into the land of Shechem and they stay away so long that Jacob, their father, who kept Joseph home. Isn't that interesting? Apparently has no alternative but to now send Joseph off to go find his brothers. It's like almost from the beginning of this story, Moses, who's the author and is writing this whole thing, is saying, uh, dad's a little, you know, concerned about Joseph, his favorite son, a son of Rachel, being alone with these guys. And as it turns out, if he was concerned, his concern was legit because Joseph shows up and they grab him and they strip him and they throw him in a pit while they sit around trying to decide what to do. Do we kill him? Do we leave him there to starve? What do we do? And here comes the caravan of spice traders heading down to Egypt. You know this deal. And Judah, whose name is Judas in the Greek, plays the role of Judas Iscariot. He says, no, 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 we don't have to kill him. Let's send him to Egypt. They'll kill him down there. We'll sell him for silver. And they pull him up and they sell him to the spice traders and off goes Joseph down into Egypt where he's sold into the household of a man named Potiphar as a slave. And not one thing inside the edges of his little puzzle piece life is it making any sense to him at all, but it's making perfect sense to the puzzle maker. To him, everything's right on track. And the brothers take his little multicolored coat and they dip it in the blood of a goat and they take it home and they present it to their father They rip out his heart. And they say, you know what? Is this your sons? Not as this our brothers. They've disinherited Joseph. Meanwhile, Joseph's living in Potiphar's house, and the Lord is with Joseph. And God gives him favor and makes everything he touches successful, and Potiphar recognizes that. And you know what the flowchart becomes, don't you? Potiphar, Joseph, and everyone else. It's a pattern everywhere this guy goes. And all is well for a slave anyway, at least for Joseph. And, well, until Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of trying to rape her, even though, in fact, it was the other way around. And Joseph, through no fault of his own, in fact, for doing the right thing, for refusing this woman is thrown into another pit, and this time it's the pit of Pharaoh's dungeon. And nothing inside the edges of his little puzzle piece life is making any sense to him. But the puzzle maker's like, right on, that's just the way I planned it. Perfect! And the jailer then also notices that the favor of the Lord is upon this guy, and so guess what the flowchart becomes? Chief jailer, Joseph, and then everyone, and well, everything else. He rises to the top everywhere he goes, and sure enough, in the providence of God... He meets two very important prisoners, the Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and Pharaoh's chief baker, both of which have these prophetic revelations from God, and they wake up really bummed because they're foreclosed from all of the wise men of Egypt. I mean, they're in prison, right? So nobody there can interpret their dreams, and Joseph notices that they're dismayed and says, hey, what's going on? They tell him, and he says, ah, I can do this, meaning he still believes in his dreams too. It's amazing how this guy clings to God when nothing inside the corners of his life makes any sense. 
And sure enough, they tell him their dreams, and sure enough, he interprets their dreams, and sure enough, everything that he says will happen happens. The cupbearer in three days is restored to the right hand of Pharaoh. The baker has his head cut off, he's impaled on a pole, and eaten by the birds. Not such a good dream for him. But then Joseph is forgotten, and two more years go by. It's been 13 years now. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh has two dreams with one message, by the way. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? And the cupbearer has that aha moment. He remembers Joseph because nobody in Egypt is able to interpret these dreams. And so they call Joseph up out of the prison from the pit. And Pharaoh tells him his dreams. And Joseph says, well, you know, I got some good news and some bad news. And the good news is the next seven years around here are going to be amazing. There are going to be seven years of incredible abundance. It's going to be like you've never seen before. The bad news, and you might want to sit down, is that following that, we're going to have seven years of famine. Not one, not two, not three. You might be able to survive that. Seven, you are all dead. Your, your, your nation is just tatters. After, I mean, it's, you're gone. And while they're all standing there dumbfounded, Joseph, who's only been asked to give an interpretation, then gives the answer to the problem of seven years of famine. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to find a guy, wise and discerning. You need to appoint him over everybody. So the flow chart is Pharaoh, that guy, everyone and everything else. And he needs to, you know, store everything up and he lays out his plan during the seven good years and then distribute and he lays out his plan during the seven years of famine. And not only will everyone make it through Pharaoh, but at the end of it all, if you're following me here, bud, you're going to own everyone and everything. It's going to be seven years of famine for everyone in this whole region of the world except you. This is good news. And God has given you this news in advance. And Pharaoh takes this guy who, you know, I don't know how many minutes earlier was in his prison. He has not background checked him. He has not fingerprinted him. He's not checked his references. He's not done anything with regard to his background that we're aware of anyway. And he takes this guy and as only God can orchestrate, guess where he fits in the flow chart? It becomes Pharaoh, Joseph, and well, everything and everyone else. And Joseph stores up the food according to his plan for the seven years of abundance. And then the seven years of famine begin. And again, the famine is not just in Egypt. The whole region of the world is suffering under this famine. And only Egypt had advance notice. Only Egypt stored up. Only Egypt has food. And this whole region of the world that's slowly dying includes the land of Canaan, which is significant. Why? Because that's where Joseph's family and specifically his brothers are. So we pick up the story this morning in the land of Canaan. And Moses, who's writing this story tells us this in Genesis 42, beginning in verse 1. He says, now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. How did he see that? Well, Jacob's a wealthy guy. Huge resources, okay? So his resources dwindle a little more slowly than everyone else's. And there are a lot of people in the land of Canaan. And guess where they're all going now to get food? They start going down and coming back and going down to Egypt and coming back and going down to Egypt and coming back. And he sees This is working, and that's where the food is. He sees that there's grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, and this is such the dad statement, why are you staring at one another? 
usually my dad just told me to get a part of my body in gear. That was the way that he would phrase it. I want you to get your in gear. And normally I did. But it tells you something about these brothers. There's no leader. There's no consensus. There's no unity. It's a broken group. Why are you guys just staring at one another? He says, behold, I have heard. So he has seen and heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. This is not a little matter and you're sitting on your hands. What's the matter with you guys? The plan is not confusing. And you you can't even do that. And then Moses tells us something very significant. It says, then 10 brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. Now, why does he mention 10? Because Joseph has 11 brothers. Benjamin doesn't make the trip because dad won't let him go. It says, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, meaning Joseph's only full-blooded brother, the only remaining son of Rachel with these guys. And here's why. For he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. What harm is that? And from whom? Because as far as we know, people are going down from Canaan to Egypt, which really wants to sell grain, you know, so they're making it easy. They're getting it and they're coming back and they're going down and they're getting it and they're coming back and they're going down and they're getting it and they're coming back. Doesn't seem like there's a lot of harm to be worried about here. A lot of people making successful unharmed trips is the idea. The harm I think that he's worried about is the harm that may come to him If he hangs out with his brothers, I think that he's thinking to himself, you know, the last time that I sent a son of Rachel off with these guys, it didn't end well. And this tells you also that once Joseph disappeared, Jacob took all that favoritism that he had placed on Joseph and he placed it instead now on Benjamin, the only remaining son of his favorite wife, Rachel. It makes you wonder if he's walking around in a multicolored coat which means what? It means that getting rid of Joseph did not solve the other 10 brothers' problem. Hang on to that. Because the question that's running through this story right here is, have they changed? I mean, are these the same guys that seized Joseph and stripped Joseph and threw Joseph into the pit and then sold Joseph presumably to his death by selling him into Egypt as a slave Or has God begun to do a work in their lives and in their hearts? Are they different or are they the same guys? Are they capable now of loving a son, even though if he is the favorite of their father and is a son of Rachel, or do they still hate? And is a son of Rachel really capable of trusting them? And that is what Joseph has very wisely created a plan to try to figure out. Because as we saw already, Joseph has forgiven his brothers, which was kind of a cool message to us last week because it tells us that we can do the kind of the same thing. No matter how broken and hurt and dysfunctional our relationship has been with someone, no matter how abusive even perhaps it has been with something, as we come around this idea, and it's hard to get around sometimes given what we see inside the edges of the little puzzle pieces of our lives, when we come around this idea that God is taking 
all that we can see, which is confusing and hurtful at times, and he's plugging it into a picture that makes perfect sense of it all, that makes it beautiful, that causes us at some point to go, wow, and get it. When we understand that, we can begin to let go of things now. Joseph has seen how his life fits in the big, beautiful picture of God. And looking back on it now, he sees all of the good that God has brought out of it, even out of the wickedness of his brothers, even out of the real hurt and pain that they inflicted upon him intentionally, maliciously. Joseph has forgiven his brothers. The question that Joseph is dealing with is, can they love me, really? And are they so transformed that now I can trust them? Because here's the deal. You can forgive people, but you can't change the way they feel about you. And you can forgive people, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily worthy of your trust automatically. Has God worked in the lives of his brothers? Has God changed their hearts and made them capable of loving a favorite son of their father, a son of Rachel? and worthy of his trust. Because you see, what he desires is real and authentic relationship. And without love and trust, you can't have it. So anyway, Joseph's brothers leave Canaan. They leave their father. They leave Benjamin behind because dad's like a no-go on that. And they travel down, these 10 guys, to Egypt. And Joseph is waiting. You know, they only live about a week's journey away. He's waited seven years of abundance and probably the better part of an eighth year just kind of waiting for them to show. Because he knows the famine's seven years. And he knew they'd be coming. And it's been about 21 years since they've seen him. The last time they saw him, he was 17. Now he's about 38. The last time they saw him, he had hair and a beard. Now he has neither. The last time they saw him, he was naked. Now he is clothed with the royalty of Egypt and wearing the big gold Egyptian collar. The last time they saw him, he was headed down to Egypt as a slave and presumably to his death. And right now the flowchart in Egypt is Pharaoh, Joseph, everyone else. He is the Lord of Egypt. And he speaks to them through an interpreter. So he's speaking in front of them, at least, only Egyptian, though he understands everything that they say. And he learns a lot. So they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them, and he begins to execute his plan. He starts to test them, so he speaks harshly to them, and you're like, yes, because that's what you want to do, isn't it? Speak harshly to them, but that's not why he does it. He's, it's not, he's forgiven them. He speaks harshly to them because as you rewind the tape and you go back into the story, you realize that they spoke harshly to him. Remember, if you know the story, it says they could not speak a kind word to him. He speaks, therefore, not a kind word to them. And you're like, well, then what is he doing if it's not revenge? He's recreating their crime against him. He wants to see if they notice. So he speaks harshly to them, and then he accuses them falsely of being spies, just as they falsely accused him of being dead to their father. Being a spy, by the way, capital offense. So he then condemns them, in a sense, to death. He gives them a death sentence, just as they had done to him in sending him down to Egypt. He takes them and he throws them in a pit of a prison. And he leaves them to argue amongst each other for three days, which they do. Just as they had thrown him in a pit while they sat around debating over what to do with him. You see the corollaries? He pulls them up out of this pit of a prison now, and he binds one of them, Simeon, 
right in front of their eyes, and he keeps him in Egypt just as they had bound him and sent him to Egypt. And then he sells these guys the food that they had come for. And unbeknownst to them, he takes the silver that they had used to buy the food, and he has his servants or steward or whatever put that silver back into the mouth of these big sacks of grain that they then put on their beasts of burden, whatever those were. And they took home with them, and he sends them not from Canaan to Egypt. That's the trip they sent him on. But he sends them from Egypt to Canaan, and they get home, and they open their grain, and there is their silver. Time out. What did they sell Joseph for? They sold him for silver. He's recreating their crime. And so then the question is, are they getting the message? And they absolutely are. Moses says in Genesis 42, verse 28, he says, and their hearts sank when they saw the silver. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? And you want to kind of step into their conversation and go, maybe you guys are confused, you know, (laughs) because God didn't do this to you. Joseph did. No, no, no. God through Joseph did this to them. God through Joseph is creating sets of circumstances, tests, trials, things that he is forcing them to go through that he might by his spirit begin to unearth their sin, begin to unearth their guilt. And to what end? Simply to forgive them? No, that's, that's not it. It's not like you come to Christ and He forgives you and then the journey's over. To have them to confess it, yes. To have them find forgiveness, yes. But the goal is transformation. It's to make them capable of loving one whom they previously hated and worthy of the trust of one whose trust they so profoundly betrayed. And the question is, you know, then what are they going to do? I mean, are they going to keep the money and abandon Simeon like they had done with Joseph, sell him in some sense for silver? Or are they going to go back to Egypt with their silver and try to recover Simeon knowing, by the way, that when they get there, it may be that this Egyptian lord who's already falsely accused them of being spies, I mean, they had a rough time the last time they were down in Egypt, may have no record of their having paid for the grain that they in fact took. And he may then accuse them of being thieves, false accusation, but it's a real possibility. So are they gonna, what are they going to do? Well, I'll tell you what they're not going to do. They're not going to go back without Benjamin because Joseph said as part of his parting words, here's the deal, don't even come back. I don't want to see your face ever again unless you bring this guy, Benjamin. This brother you've told me about as I've interrogated you. And dad's not going to let him go. It's stunning. Jacob simply writes off Simeon. I mean, he's not happy to do it, but he's willing to do it. How do you think that made these other guys feel? He will not even risk Benjamin at all, even if that means he has to leave Simeon in Egypt. And he sits around, no doubt, hoping that the famine's going to come to an end so they never have to go back. But it doesn't come to an end, and Joseph knew that it wouldn't. He knows how long the famine is. And so their food supplies run low, and it becomes a decision of, look, Either go back to Egypt with Benjamin or die here. And Judah, who has been the most villainous character in this whole story until now, 
begins to show a transformed heart. And he steps up and takes a leadership that unifies these otherwise broken brothers. Genesis 43, verse 8, it says, Judah said to his father Israel, that's Jacob, send the lad, send Benjamin, he's saying, with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones, because that's what's at stake here, dad. And then get this. He says, I myself will be a surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. In fact, if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. What is Judah doing? Judah, who is on a mission to save the household of his father, is offering his life as a substitute to get the job done. And so this guy who earlier in the story is a picture of Judas Iscariot is in this story here the clearest picture, and there are lots of pictures of Jesus, but the clearest picture of Christ in the whole narrative. That's amazing. Judah offers his life to save the family of his father, and Jacob the father accepts And this time, all the brothers, including Benjamin, go off to Egypt where Simeon, but most particularly where Joseph is waiting. And again, he does something unexpected. He invites them all over to lunch. Okay. That's interesting. And they're all suspicious about it. You know, they're very nervous about this lunch. They're thinking to themselves, oh, no, this means that they don't have record of our payment, that he thinks that we're thieves. He's bringing us over to, their ha- or to his house to bring judgment upon us. It's interesting what guilty consciences will do. It's amazing how we misinterpret blessings for cursings when we're coming under conviction. So anyway, you know, Joseph's off at work, and they're at his house waiting. They pull his steward aside and say, hey, listen, man, when we got home the last time and opened up our grain and the silver was in it, so here's what we've done. Uh, Just in case, we're going to give you double the money for the grain we've already eaten, and then we brought additional money to buy new grain. And the steward's like, whoa, guys, I don't know what you're talking about. We've got record of your payment. Everything's fine. So they're like, you know, and then they're restored to Simeon. He's pulled up out of jail. What might he have been thinking? And Joseph comes home, and now watch this. All 11 brothers bow at his feet. What just happened? Dream is fulfilled. It's happened. But Joseph has a bigger goal. His goal is authentic and real relationship with these guys, something that he's never his whole life had. So he seats them then all at his table, and he gives them his second test. He puts them in their order of birth, you know, which they're a little weirded out by, because how does he know this? And, but anyway, Benjamin, again, is at the kind of the end of the table, the least favored position, and yet Joseph comes along and shows him the most favor. In fact, an exaggerated amount of favor. He gives all of these guys a plate of food. He gives Benjamin five plates. There's no way to miss it. And then he watches to see how they handle it. And they're unfazed. Good news. So then he sets up his third test. He sells them the grain that they came for. Once again, he puts their money back in the bags. They don't know it. And he says to his steward, I want you to take my own personal 
silver drinking cup, this goblet that is unique to me, sort of like a coat you might have heard about in the story. And anyway, I want you to take this goblet and I want you to put it into this big sack of grain that is for Benjamin, the youngest. And he does, and then the brothers load up their stuff and they start heading out of town. And no sooner do they hit the city gates than does the steward of Joseph overtake them, no doubt with some soldiers, surrounds them and accuses them of being thieves, of stealing the cup. And these guys are blown away by that. They're like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, remember, we're the guys who went down and then found the money in our sacks once we got, and then we came back with double the money to get, I mean, if there's honest people in town right now, it's us. Why in the world would we do something that stupid? That We're just happy to get out of town, man. I mean, we had no idea how this whole deal was going to go down. And we got here and we came to the lunch and we had the talk. With, Are you kidding me? There is no way one of us would have done this. And they're all nodding along going, yeah, no, no, not me, not me, not me, not me, not me. They are so confident that they are innocent. And why wouldn't they be? And here's what they say. Genesis 44 verse 9, they say, with whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And all the rest of us will be your slaves. And the steward says, no, here's the thing. I'm going to search. And with whomever it is found, just that guy. Just that guy stays with me. That guy pays the price. That guy is my slave. And so he starts searching, you know, and he starts with the oldest to the youngest. So he goes to Reuben's grain, he opens it up, innocent. Simeon, innocent. Judah, innocent. On and on. Innocent, 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 innocent. And you know, you got to know their confidence is building. I can almost see him strutting around all indignant, you know, like, yeah, go ahead, open that one. Yeah, why don't you open that one? Hey, you want to look through here? Because it's not there either. By the way, it's not over here. Not over here either. We don't see it over here. They get to Benjamin's bag, they open it up, guilty. And poor Benjamin must have just about had a stroke. Can you imagine that? And all of the brothers are like, now what does it look like? It looks like Benjamin is guilty of something so petty, so stupid, so foolish, so you've got to be kidding me, that they were so incredulous over even the thought that any one of them could possibly do such a thing, they said, look, whoever it is, just kill him. Because it's not one of us. So what has Joseph done? He has given them a golden opportunity to rid themselves of the only other favorite son of Jacob, the only other existing son, as far as they knew, of Rachel, and to blame it on him. Hey, Dad. He brought it on himself. He's guilty. So what are they going to do? Can they love such a one as this? Or are their hearts and dispositions toward that kind of person, that favorite son, still those of hate? Well, they're not going to abandon Benjamin this time. Even though they could do it with complete impunity, they all return to the house of Joseph. And they all fall again on their faces before him. And Judah, the clear leader at this point, 
with the unity of all of his brothers behind him, begins to speak, and it's, it's stuttered speech. It, it's broken speech. He's so distressed he can't articulate clearly. He just starts rattling off. What, what he, it says in Genesis 44, verse 16, Judah said, what, what, what can we say to my Lord? What, what can we speak and how can we justify ourselves? It's like, we're done. And then he says, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Like, really? What iniquity exactly are you referring to? Because it isn't the iniquity of the cup, is it? Because none of you guys did that. Not even Benjamin. Although only Benjamin knows that. He and Joseph. He's talking about the iniquity that they committed against Joseph, guys. And Joseph knows it. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Our crime has been recreated upon us. And we're done. He says, behold, we, meaning every one of us are my Lord's slaves. We will not leave our our father's favorite son behind. We are my Lord's slaves, he says, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. And Joseph says, now, are you really sure about that, guys? Because here's my offer. I don't need the rest of you to stay here. I don't think the rest of you need to stay here. I'm going to keep the guilty one, and the rest of you can go home. And Judah, in the climax of the entire narrative, says this in verse 32, He says to Joseph, your servant, he's talking about himself, became a surety for the lad, for this boy Benjamin, to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, he says, therefore, please let your servant, let me remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord. Now, just take that in for a minute, because this is the guy who sold an innocent Joseph, favorite son of his father, firstborn son of Rachel, into slavery for money, who here is now offering his own innocent life, not to rescue an innocent Benjamin, but one that appears guilty. He's rescuing with his own life the favorite son of his father the only remaining son of Rachel. It is transformation. It's not just forgiveness. He says, and let the lad go up with his brothers. Take me and let him go. For how, he says, so here's his motivation, for how shall I go up to my father whose feelings I so easily dismissed 22 years ago, whose heart I trampled upon, but I can't do that again, whom I now love enough to Lay down my life, basically. How shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Out of love for his father, the innocent offers his life for the guilty. And what does all of this mean? It means that these guys are really different. They're capable of loving a son of Rachel, a favorite son of their father and of being trusted by such a one as that. And Joseph, who has been hoping and praying for this, comes completely unglued. 
It says that he weeps so loud that Pharaoh, his next door neighbor, and his whole house hears him. He sends all of the Egyptians out of the room. And for the first time in 22 years, he speaks to his brothers in Hebrew. It says, then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed. What a tame word. For they were terrified is what it means. Terrified at his presence. Talk about a total surprise. They're just dumbfounded. It's like, what? And Joseph, who understands and maybe anticipates this, he had to, in tenderness, invites them to come closer. He says, please come closer to me. And they they came closer, hesitantly, no doubt. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And then he says, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for, for God sent me. God sent me before you to preserve life. That, boys, is how the little puzzle piece of my life, which includes all of your wickedness to me, fits in his big picture and is made absolutely beautiful. That's how God has used your wickedness in my life. Do not be grieved or angry with yourself because you sold me here. I've let it go. I've moved on. You're forgiven. And really, it was God who sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And here's what you don't know. There are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all of his household and the ruler over all of the land of Egypt. And they weep and they embrace. And for the first time ever, notwithstanding their history, they enjoy real and authentic relationship. And that's a great story, and it's where we'll pick it up next week. But let me tell you what I think our problem is with this part of the story. In fact, I think our problem is with the whole story. I think our problem with the story of Joseph in general is that when we come to this story, we tend to identify only with Joseph. That, I think, is the problem. We come to sermons like this and series like this, and we sit around identifying with Joseph and thinking about all the people who have wronged us, and yeah, and they did, and they, you know, and it's, it's like, hang on a second, time out, because I think the people that we're primarily supposed to identify with, believe it or not, are his brothers. And instead of sitting around thinking about the wrongs that have been committed to us, we need to spend some time thinking about the wrongs that we've committed to others. And asking ourselves, how is God working in my life right now? How is he orchestrating my circumstances to unearth my sin? Not only that I might be forgiven as I take that sin to the true Judah, to the the son of the heavenly father, Jesus, who has offered his life on a cross 
as the substitute, as the payment for all of the sin of everyone who puts their faith in him, which the Father, by the way, accepts. But how is God also working to transform me, to make me someone capable of love and worthy of trust? So I want to ask you this morning, what is God unearthing in you? What does he want you to come to him and find forgiveness for, finally and definitively? And how is he transforming you? Because again, we're not just supposed to identify with Joseph. We're supposed to identify with his brothers and walk away from a story like this saying, okay, how are these guys a picture of me? Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for your sovereignty, for your wisdom, Lord, for your providence that makes sense of our lives, even when we do not understand what's going on for all that we can see is to the outer edges. Lord, we thank you again for this man, Joseph for the wisdom that you gave him in dealing with people and working through forgiveness. Father, we thank you also for the way that you work in our lives, that you love us as we sang, and that you do not let us go, but instead, Lord, that you not only forgive, but you transform. And I pray that you would reveal to us how you're doing it, that we might find forgiveness and that we might be made capable of love and worthy of trust. We thank you and we worship you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.